You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here and it is an enormous pleasure tonight to be introducing Dr. Augustus Casely Hayford, otherwise known as Gus, who is going to be talking, as you know, about the relationship between Picasso and African art, or perhaps I should say African art and Picasso. So Gus Casely Hayford is a curator and cultural historian and is the former executive director of Arts Strategy for Arts Council England. He's currently a research associate at the University of London School of African and Oriental Studies. He has presented arts programs for the BBC and Channel 4, including The Miracle of British Art in 2010. He's a member of Tate Britain's Council, a trustee of the National Portrait Gallery, and a Claw Fellow. Gus has lectured at the Royal College of Art, Sotheby's Institute of Art and Goldsmiths College and gained a PhD in African history from SOAS. Gus presents The Lost Kingdoms of Africa for the BBC now in its second series. I don't know if any of you have seen any of those, those programs on TV Ontario. I was with Gus in a taxi the other day and somebody said, are you on television? I think I saw you in Ethiopia. And what I just read his bio from is a book that he has produced that's not available here yet but hopefully will be soon. Um, on that that series, which is wonderful. So, Gus, please come and talk to us. Thank you, Julian. It's just it's wonderful to be back here, but uh, particularly um, seeing Julian again, who always makes me feel so welcome. This feels like a second home, Toronto. I do love it here. Um, I live and work in London, um, and one of the institutions, as Gillian said, that I work with is, is, is the Tate. And at the moment, um, our big spring exhibition is an exhibition of Picasso. And it tells the story of Picasso and the artists that he influenced. It is an amazing exhibition, and the actual catalogue is um, for sale in the bookshop upstairs. But it tells the story of... Picasso and many of his European, but particularly British, um, contemporaries. Um, and one of the things I was wanting to do was today was not to just look at artists that Picasso influenced, but look at some artists that actually influenced Picasso. And these are artists that just do not get the kind of acknowledgement that they deserve. These are artists from Africa. So I just wanted to share some of that story with you today. I've always found it absolutely fascinating and actually quite difficult to digest that only a decade separates the creation of these two amazing images. Less than a decade might separate the creation of these images, but a century divides them. And it's a century or a particular moment when there's a philosophical gear change. And in a way, it's a discrete ideological line which is being drawn in the sand. It was subtle, almost subtle enough not to have been noticed when it actually happens. But now that time and consequence have given it a bit of context, 
you can see it very, very clearly. But now what's more than clear is that at the moment that the old century died, a fiery new aesthetic was born. And this wasn't a further resolution of the aesthetic conundrum that had been teasing European artists for centuries. This wasn't an evolutionary step towards taking us closer to understanding the subtle mechanics of paint on canvas. This, in my view, was the discovery of a new aesthetic aim. And it took us closer to understanding the subtle mechanics of paint and canvas. It was the discovery of a new way of thinking about painting, a paradigm shift, a move from trying to think about the physics of the visual to coming to terms with its metaphysics, an acceptance that the most fundamental, immutable questions can be the most interesting, almost possibly because of their very inscrutability. The 19th, if you think about this moment, the 19th century waltz of oil on canvas was over, and it was replaced by something completely different, a visual debate about being, about living, about feeling, questioning, a relocation of the very self, the individual, and the artist. The single viewer, a self-explorer, was suddenly pushed to the very forefront of the painting project. These paintings, they could evangelize, they could exercise, they could fill your psyche with new ghosts. They weren't pictures of other people, of pretty people, of bourgeois people. They were paintings of my pain, of my joy, questions for you and for me. And these were paintings that were more like torn pages from a diary rather than perfectly metered poetry. And as far as I'm concerned, 1905 was the first year of the 20th century. The mourning for the dying certainties of the 19th century was over. Einstein publishes his first paper on relativity. Freud, his three contributions to, on sexual theory. Ford became convinced of the possibility of a mass market car. And Russia began to melt into revolution. But there's a more subtle revolution beginning. And it began at the world's margins. But it grew to become the essence of the age. It was a revolution of sex, of physics and politics. All of these things combined. A revolution of the Western psyche. The ennoblement of the average man. And more possibly important, of the average woman. Whilst Einstein and Freud and Ford tore up the accepted blueprint of the mechanics of our future, a hidden battle began for our cultural destiny. Who would com compose the fanfare to the common man, write the clarion call for the voiceless? Who'd paint our banners and build totems to create, to create a place for the hidden heroes? And this was, in my view, the beginning of a radical change in the trajectory of pre-Second World War cultural, cultural thinking. It's a revolution, at first subtle, but it would grow to define the 20th century. It's about popular culture. The classic downward percolation of high ideas 
replaced by the irrepressible rise of, the st of street culture. And that wind of change, it rose up in the great industrial heartlands of the West and then infect infected the psyche of the rural poor through the music of Harlem, through the Union newspapers of Detroit, through the novels of the American Plains, the politics of St. Petersburg, the painting of Paris, the poetry of London, the modern man, and as I said, perhaps more importantly, the modern woman was born. They were average human beings and heroes because of it, made worthy subjects because of their very prosaic history. But, they, but within that story was something new, exotic nuances, newly discovered cultures, and the possibility of an undefined future, which was quite unlike the past. Now the question is, what created this? Where did this energy come from, this intellectual explosion? Where was it born? Well, I actually think it came, at least in part, in its essence, in its inspiration, it came out of Africa. As early as the Renaissance, works of African art had found their way into European collections of curios. And Rabelais, he, he, he writes about Africa as this place that could always produce new and monstrous things. Um, today, there are only a few pieces that um, exist from that period of collecting, some hunting horns and powder containers. That, you know, this is around the time of Louis XIV. And they give us a clue as to how European intellectuals and their advisers, mainly at the king's court, interpreted what they saw. Objects of utility, such as receptacles and medical remedies, were often misread by Europeans to be art. And from the moment, and from the moment that trading began, that there was a miscommunication about these objects. For Europeans, African artefacts simply hardened their image of Africa as a strange and frightening place. And what followed in the shape of ruthless colonialism was often justified as being a necessary moral mission. And from the 19th century, galleries began to spring up, half fairground freak shows, half anthropological studios, where sculptures and curiosities from Africa stood side by side with homemade curios with fantastical fictional origins. Many of these galleries, perhaps unwittingly, pandered to the very worst contemporary fears of Africa, furnishing their walls with stage scenes of savagery, some even with stuffed Africans posed as specimens. But even against that, this backdrop, a few broad-minded men could pick out the aesthetic mastery from amongst the fake and the adulterated. In 1878, the Ethnographic Museum of Scientific Missions opened in Paris. It was the first state-sponsored, universally accessible institution ded dedicated to classifying and comparing specimens from around the world. It was a fascinating period of political change and of social flux. It was a generation before eugenics and social Darwinism had become intellectual fa intellectually fashionable, but the thinking that would ground those movements had, was gaining credibility. 
It was in cities like Paris, where great thinkers congregated, that these approaches began to find traction. The museum opened with a spectacular display of African objects. Many of the African exhibits at the Ethnographic Museum of Scientific Missions were displayed to suggest a fairly fundamental cultural hierarchy, but they told a story. African sculptures were, in some way, the physical manifestations of a childlike and primitive culture, notions which would strengthen and eventually pervade. The success of this exhibition led to a wing of the Palais de Trocadero becoming dedicated to tribal art from around the world. This later became the famous Museum of Ethnography of, the Tro of Trocadero, which was frequented by many of the greatest Western artists of the 20th century. Some of the collection was colonial booty, but some had been brought back from Africa by state-sponsored ethnographic specialists. Some had been even collected by natural historians, and so the collection, though unrivaled, was very patchy and highly uncomprehensive. But it was imaginatively and forcefully curated to tell a powerful story of France's African colonies. And, an, and, to, and it was an attempt to offer an insight into the African mind. The display and the context couldn't stop one thing. The objects themselves being conceptually and physically breathtaking. They were simply unlike anything else in approach, in execution, in what they provoked in the viewer. The exhibits created such an impact on the few people who saw them that there was eventually a permanent exhibition of African artifacts installed on the site. And as early as 1890, men like Paul Gauguin had found their way around these exhibits and they'd begun to make small personal collections of, Afri of African sculpture. Ironically, despite their context, these works themselves seemed to have a power to transcend the, the context and the ambient lack of knowledge. And, the early, and in the early 20th century, these objects began to be increasingly perceived as being of artistic importance. And Paris, more than any other city, became the point of convergence for the propagation of ideas and activities that bestowed upon African art an essential role in the formation of abstraction. As expertise and connoisseurship in African art began to develop, the old-style curio museums began to go out of fashion, and the whole discipline of display of non-European artefacts was reconsidered. So by 1900, the Palais de Trocadero had become one of Europe's main centres of excellence for the study and display of African artefacts. And it attracted expertise, and, it, and they began sending their, collections, uh, their collectors out into the field, and they began to add to the numerous, numerous written studies and scholarly work on Africa. And the whole discipline began to change. And there were one or two influential men at this period who also began to galvanise things, people like Emil Heyman, um, and also the creative polymath, Apollinaire. And they began voraciously collecting and writing on Africa, arguing it to be the most exciting art that Europe had yet seen. And after years of wafting across the ambience, with an almost uncanny synchronicity, in the early years of the 20th century, African art exploded into the art zeitgeist. 
Flamanc and Durand began to move on from their fascination in French peasant art and Picasso from Iberian traditional carving to explore Africa. And as I'm sure you know, many art historians have argued that they saw in folk art possibilities of pushing Cezanne's project of form and rendering further. And it was, a first, it, was a, it was this first that was created by these kinds of experiments with Cezanne's work that was only really, in my mind, satiated when Paris identified African art as a possible new visual catalyst. The psychological and cultural moment was right for a whole new generation of Paris-based artists to discover and immerse themselves in what, in a strange way, had always been around them. Now, Vlamanc, he adamantly asserted that he discovered, he, that's the word he uses, African art in 1905. Matisse, he maintained that he was the first, dating his finds almost to the same kind of period. And so did Felix Fenion, Georges Braque, André Lode. But Vlamanc, he suggests that during the summer of 1905, in exchange um, for buying drinks for customers in a cafe, he carried off two Dahomey sculptures and an Ivorian mask similar to this one. If you could imagine that there are people who are travelling from many different parts of the world who all converge on Paris. So the ex exchanges of wonderful and exotic things probably was going on all the time. And he maintained that it was during that summer, 1905, that he acquired a white mask like this one, and he sold it to Duran. At different times, Vlamanc gives differing chronologies to these events, but it appears that there is something to them, because Duran corroborates that it was in his studio that Picasso and Matisse first saw one of these masks, and they were both deeply impressed by it. Disturbed by it, they say. And later that year, Matisse saw a mask in Emil Heyman's shop, which he bought for 50 francs. And he showed that to Picasso and to Apollinaire, by now already a well-known collector. And Matisse suggests that this was the first object that Picasso was really moved by and thought this was the beginning of a relationship. Because of the obvious importance of this historic moment, there are lots of conflicting accounts of who used African art first as a point of aesthetic inspiration. In fact, there are even conflicting accounts of when each of the central figures first encountered African sculpture. And I think partially that the fact that so many great men would have argued so much over who bought what when is a measure of the importance of this moment in the history of art. The first verified collectors were, as I said, Duran and Matisse. Matisse probably inspiring Picasso in late 1906, an inspiration which only gelled in the spring of 1907 when Picasso visited the Palais de Trocadero. By then, Matisse already owned some 20 pieces of African art. And this wasn't as extensive as, as the collections of Picasso or Braque were to become. But for the period, 
It was a highly impressive collection, both in its range and its complexity. Matisse seems to have found ways of very quickly using it as an inspiration for his work. Whilst for Flamanque, African art fitted into a landscape of primitive folk art associated primarily with an emotional and romantic primitivism, for Matisse, Duran, and later Picasso, African art suggested a new plastic dimension for sculpture. And through sculpture, painting, new ways of dealing with the heritage of Cezanne. Matisse's still life with African sculpture, and if you look at um, what it's based upon, it's quite a literal exposition of an African sculpture. But even in this, he was pushing contemporary intellectual boundaries. Many artists did similar similar, uh, explorations around the same time of carvings. But what followed in the hands of Matisse was completely unlike what anyone else had previously done. He found ways of reshaping, of re-rendering what had been known um, in terms of paint on canvas. And in 1907, you see that culminating in the blue nude. He found ways of using African sculpture as a point of departure, flattening the planes, toying and questioning dimension, using exaggerated sexual parts of African art in both his sculpture and his painting using sculpture as a mode of experimentation and pushing his experiments further in paint until he found a way to combine the statuesque forms of European antiquity with the precise drafting of Cezanne while still emanating the imagined sexual rhythmic potency of Africa. The bulbous buttocks, the large breasts, exaggerated as if she was an it, as though this was a fertility object. And when, some years later, Matisse discovered these Gabonese masks, he saw in their simple purity something completely asexual. This he transmogrified into a portrait of a hollow-eyed woman, middle-aged, middle-class, brittle, devoid of the animal quality that fixated many of his contemporaries. She's slightly demure, perhaps even a little cold, distant. The absolute antithesis of the cliched image of Africa. In fact, this is a portrait of Madame Matisse, the artist's wife. This is, if anything, indicative of how Matisse tried to use the sculpture as inspiration and not necessarily to fall back on contemporary stereotypes. Andre Salmon, the contemporary art historian, criticized this painting for looking like a mask of wood smeared with chalk, a figure in a nightmare, an idea which has been repeated by many subsequent historians. And William Rubin found it almost cruel. He writes this great huge tome, Primitivism, 
And he finds it almost cruel that one would paint one's spouse in the guise of a mask that represents a ghost. But perhaps there's another way of looking at this image. In many parts of Africa, death and the dead are not feared in the way that they are in Euro-Christian tradition. The dead can often be kind, helpful, benevolent. They can traverse the veil between life and death. They're privy to secrets of the very mechanics of metaphysics, and so are often revered and respected. In European tradition, we strangely love our late loved ones, but we fear death so much that it can taint our image and representation of the dead. In Africa, there's a clear division between a manifest fear of the absoluteness of death and the integrity of the love of those that we have for those who have died. So this death, the image of of Madame Matisse, would not, and perhaps should not, be perceived as something to fear, but but as a thing of lasting beauty, a beauty trapped in the absolute infinity of death. Although many people might disagree, I feel that Matisse had made an important intellectual breakthrough. He found a way of dividing contemporary fears, prejudice, and nebulous feelings of Africa from what he could actually see, feel, deduce directly from the sculptures and from the masks. And through the intellectual door that Matisse had forced ajar, contemporary Paris followed each artist taking something different from African art. Matisse had made it apparent that Africa could ask questions of art that European salons and circles had not yet considered. And this wasn't like the St. Ives painters being inspired by local naive artists. This was like discovering a new primary colour, another sense, a new means of communication. It wasn't evolutionary. It wasn't revolutionary. Its very aims and constituents, the possibilities were so different as to almost make this a new discipline. It wasn't painting on canvas as it had been accepted. It was more like psychological graffiti. It didn't ask you politely to gaze across its surface. It gripped you in a gaze, it gripped your gaze in a vice-like hold and squeezed until you paid attention. This changed the potential of paint on canvas forever. But a few artists, such as Flamanc, who used African art simply as a point of cultural inspiration, became more interested in what they perceived as the raw energy of of the art. And I apologise for the quality of this image, but uh, it gives a sense of it. Rather than what it offered visually or intellectually, they saw symbolic products of the other, the primitive. They read African sculpture as though they were alien, alien artifacts found on Alpha Centauri, too strange, too remote, too primal to even begin to decipher. The point of contact with the African psyche was through personal aesthetic explorations. They ignored some purposely the particular iconographical significance, the actual effect induced by the form of the objects. These were found objects, almost byproducts of nature. They couldn't make Matisse's leap. 
They sought to reconstruct history. Um, and this was of a similar period, Andre Duran's The Dance. And we, it, it's, in a similar way, it's sort of charged with a synthetic exoticism. I actually find it a little bit... It doesn't make me feel think of Africa. It's more like, um, I don't know, tin pineapples or stuffed tigers, that it hints at something, but it's ultimately, it's artifice. It's fake. It's a fake diorama of exoticism. And Andre Salmon, the art historian, that he fell prey to some of the contemporary pressures, and he never really came to terms with the idea that this African art that was inspiring all of these great minds around him, that it was made by the kinds of Africans that he would see on Parisian streets. If you think of Paris at this time, it was incredibly cosmopolitan. Africans coming in from right across the continent, from right across West Africa, North Africa, pouring into to Paris. And he couldn't, he couldn't think that these were the kinds of people that would be creating this incredible art. So he built this semi-fictional history in which the African art that he and his contemporaries collected was from an ancient Africa, a pre-Egyptian Africa, that had long been forgotten by the African of the 20th century. The range of interpretation and reflection is perhaps a measure of the complexity of the issues that surrounded and still surround African art. A mask from Africa looks and reads profoundly differently when being worn and danced, from when it's held in the hand, from when it's displayed in a gallery, when it's kept in an artist's studio, when it's interpreted in a painting. Not only is context crucial, but also the eye of the viewer. And I think Matisse's journey demonstrated that one didn't need to fill the mysterious void around African sculpture with our own myths, fictions, and speculations. There was a lot to learn directly from these objects themselves, at least if one was prepared to look carefully enough. And this may, not, this may, not, may have been the reason that Matisse began his own collection, because out of the context of those ethnographic galleries, he could examine the works with some deliberation. And the context is so important for this work. It's only when one gives African art its true context that you can begin to read these objects as things of utility and meaning. Now, if you think about Matisse, he's obviously opened his mind up. And it's he who, in conversations with Picasso, really does change the trajectory of 20, early 20th century art. It's a really important moment. He's made this breakthrough, and he wants to enthuse his great friend, Picasso. And this is Picasso's collection as it, as it was to develop. I mean, Picasso wasn't the first, but what he found ways of doing is pursuing this avenue that's opened up by these pioneers with a kind of unique intensity. I mean, he continues to collect for years after this initial moment. And by the end of his life, his collection is actually quite substantial, as you can see here. 
And I've spent many hours looking at this and other similar images, thinking about how these objects might have inspired his work. And he seems to have followed this, a similar developmental path to Matisse by first painting through a veil of his own reflections on Africa before abandoning some of his initial conceptions and taking inspiration from the forms themselves. I mean, by 1906, I mean, it's a fascinating moment. I'm sure if you've gone and looked around the exhibition upstairs, that you know that it's a really important moment in terms of Picasso's development. He's thirsty for some form of catalytic inspiration. I mean, for, for a while, like many of his contemporaries, he's been interested in traditional European folk art. Um, he has a particular um, interest in the aesthetic traditions of his own nat native country, and he's particularly um, he's built up a small collection of Iberian reliefs. And he began borrowing from a variety of sources, inching his way to challenge his traditional notions of form and structure, searching a way to break through the constraints of conventional rendering and to break away from the literal iterations of form and content. It was Picasso's first visit to the Palais, Palais de Trocadero in 1907 when he actually sees the ethnographic collections um, and it's the thing that really catalyzes his work. I mean, when he leaves the Palais, he talks about it with, he uses words like relief. And it's not because, as he first thought, because of the you know, pretty poor displays. But later on, he reconsiders it. And he says it's, he was left with a disturbing uncomfortable feeling. The actual work, it changed him. He uses words and reuses them, words like shock, like revelation. He talks about the charge that these objects possess. And these are, the way he writes and talks about it is as one would talk about a religious experience. It's a moment of conversion. He could at last see a potential path through the maze of the then uncompleted Demoiselle d'Avignon. And although he continued to voice his complaints about the dankness and the evil smell and the poor display and the general seediness of the Palais de Trocadero, he found ways of incorporating all of those things, painting some of those ambient qualities into this canvas. And from the surviving sketches, it's evident that the figures in the Demoiselle d'Avignon were first, obviously, conceived in Iberian form. Those were the things that he had about him in his studio that he'd collected. But after his visit to the Palais de Trocadero, that first visit, those figures were gradually reworked to become more African. I mean, the residual embers of Picasso's first narrative for the for Demoiselle d'Avignon, a sailor and a medical student about to enter a brothel. And you can see them. Sailor and medical student. Um, that they're still evident in this, in this sketch. And 
you know, this is a, a brothel. I mean, what's a brothel? I mean, there's an obvious psychosexual tension, an erotic competitiveness. And a, a man entering this brothel would have been like a land to the slaughter or perhaps to the sacrifice. This picture was built on a psychosexual drama. So finding Africa during the painting of this work, it only fertilised his idea. Picasso's friend, Fernand Olivier, and if, if you go upstairs um, and, and you wander along the, the very beginning of the opening of, of the Picasso exhibition and you look at those photographs, it gives a really kind of incredible sense of the personalities. I mean, all the people I'm talking about, Andre Salmon, um, Olivier, that they're all there, kind of, you know, made real. But Ferdinand Olivier saw how African sculpture had changed Picasso, and he wrote, he was mad about them. Statues, masks, fetishes of all African regions piled up in his studio. The hunt for African work became a real pleasure for him. It also brought a new set of visual questions and answers to Picasso's painting. And in the months after discovering African art, Picasso's painting began to steadily but radically transmogrify. And I personally, I've always felt that the key to this picture is the two figures omitted from the final canvas. The two figures who've actually left the room. They stepped outside the frame to gaze back at the women of Avignon, the medical student and the sailor. I mean, they were originally in those sketches, but where are they now? They're now, they're sitting amongst us, looking back over our shoulders at the women of Avignon. And once you're aware of their presence, or even the lack of it, the women of Avignon takes on another guise. Why a sailor and a medical student? Well, this is a brothel. The men are here for a reason, and so are the women. But why are we here? Why is Picasso here? We're here to look. And ultimately, like the medical student and the sailor, to judge. For the medical student, who's had a day of corpses, the women are inanimate mannequins, served up for his delectation. For the sailor, who's on shore leave, they're warm substitutes for someone who is left at home. So who are they for us? Well, perhaps like the others, it's not that it doesn't matter who they are, it's that it can't matter. We daren't care. With this in mind, the core demureness of the central figures is obviously fake. But now the right-hand figures are even more interesting. The wanton exotic availability the potential for something unusual, and the visual vehicle for that exotic sexual potential is Africa and African art. But there's another way of looking at this image, another set of artists to consider. I found it interesting constructing a visual archaeology for some of the masks that actually inspired the figures to begin to work out, sorry, to begin to work out how masks actually inspired the creation of these figures, and how they might have played a part in triggering, triggering the thought processes that suggested this whole new direction for the artist.
And this is um, one of Picasso's first acquisitions. It's a Baolé dream masks, and it's actually from Ivory Coast, Côte d'Ivoire. And the Baolé, like many people in West Africa, they have a rich metaf metaphysical tradition. And they believe, somewhat like quantum physicists, that the physical world around us is a single subordinate dimension of a complex multidimensional universe, that our lives are effectively controlled by a complex system of interaction between the seen and the unseen world. And one way of interacting with the spirit world is through one's dreams. Whilst we can only contact the spirit in our dreams, spirits can puncture the veil that separates our world from theirs at will, guiding our destinies, aiding justice, because the spirits are privy to larger, hidden, causal truths. And they make wonderful guardians and fantastic lovers. Most Bowley take on a dream lover during adolescence, when they have their first sexual dreams, and they keep their lovers for life as perfect, ever-changing, completely fulfilling, faithful and wise partners. And at some point during adolescence, a young person will have a sculpture carved of a dream lover. They're usually about that kind of size. Usually red-skinned, overlied, with ornately plaited hair. This sculpture is treasured for life, consulted in bad times, praised in good. It becomes a member of the family. And once a year, the men of the town will dress up as dream lovers, the embodiments of love, and, and they'll dance through the centre of ballet towns, half male, half female, half human, half spirit. And they're animations of ambiguity and clandestine spiritual sexuality. And they dance to what feel almost like toxically beautiful rhythms of talking drums that you can see. I think you can see, oh, no, not in the shot. But these are kind of dun-duns that are pumped under the arm, and they can produce incredible range of, 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 of tones that, that, that speak. And they're a window between our world and the world of the spirits. And somehow, these highly treasured and respected objects found their way into the ethnographic galleries and museums across France. And when displayed well, even when displayed well, it's impossible to read their beautiful psychosexual religious histories. Um, and France, having colonised um, Ivory Coast, um, you know, the, it became the main repository for this kind of work. And where, and even as it displayed in the, in the galleries, wasn't great, but as you can see that in the way that Picasso would have collected it. It's very, it would have been very difficult to pull a sense of that history from the work. But somehow, he used those beautiful masks to re-emphasize the eyes in the central figures of Demoiselle d'Avignon. I mean, these had originally been based on, on the Iberian carvings that he'd, he, he'd collected. But he used, reused these, these, this new point of inspiration to just rework them. And they become even more sensual, even more sexy. And this was a kind of art that was also collected by Modigliani. And he gravitated towards them. And you can see the effects of them on, on his work. I mean, every nuance of his aesthetic conception was changed by ballet masks. 
Um, and again, the dislocation from the original environment hasn't affected the way in which he's captured, captured the essence of a dream lover. I mean, this is a, a woman wise, irredeemably sexy, sylph-like sophistication, a woman to love in one's dreams, but always to remain untouchable in reality. And Picasso seems to have worked across the canvas from left to right. I think the eyes of the left-hand figures were slightly reworked from the original design to take on the characteristics of Sanufo carvings from Ivory Coast. And this was mixed skillfully with drafting, which obviously still, as I said, owes a lot to Iberian work. But his discovery of the Baule, it completely transforms um, those central figures. And the right-hand figures are obviously much more overtly African. And it's possible that it's not a person he's painting. It's a portrait of a mask. I mean, for those figures on the right, he actually um, he, he uses Songhai masks. And I mean, this is there. There, this is a, a, a fascinating um, 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 uh, uh, culture, um, Central African culture, and, and most art from this region is associated with manipulating spiritual powers. I many Songhai as young men that they join groups called Bukushi, um, and they seek to gain social and political control through sorcery. And mask-wearing emissaries are seen as conduits between our world and the world of spirits. Male and female masks are differentiated by colour. The female masks are predominantly white, just as in, as in Matisse's uh, painting uh, of, of his wife. And their colour is all about power. The male mask, um, um, as here... Um, you know, are usually darker. And what I think he sought here was to gain some of that kind of the sense of the exaggerated planes and the extruded forms. And they're used in their original context for highly political and potent magic that can, that can actually kind of take away people's agency. And I actually think he sought some of that you can imagine that this is a brothel and it's about a kind of intoxication. I mean, the earlier Baule-type figures, they're almost angelic, but these ones, that they are laced with a kind of darker, um, heavier, more angular modelling, and it obscures their humanity if and their femininity, if there is any, really. And it seems that the prevailing romantic notions of African savagery are being subtly laced into these images. I mean, he's found some kind of strange beauty within them, but they are, they are at the same time, fairly aggressive. And I think the oxymoronic or paradoxical tension in these figures, it runs to the very heart of Picasso's enduring but irresolvable battle with the African aesthetic. 
and of course his equally problematic relationship and thinking around women. I mean, at times, Picasso vehemently argued that the African art held um, in his collection, you know, it, it, it was highly sophisticated and it held for him um, um, a whole set of aesthetic conundra um, and that he was deeply in love with these works. But then at other times, he said that he sought in his African collection a kind of simplicity, the naivety of a, of a child's imagination. And at other times, he was very, very keen to refute any suggestion of any aesthetic influence of African art on his work at all. And when the contemporary curator, Marius de Zayas, wrote that the whole of modernist abstraction was an offspring of African art, it so offended Picasso that he said that the African sculptures in his studio were more witnesses than models. And this was plainly not the case, but with the fading embers of Impressionism still so obvious, still so supported by the establishment, still loved by the major galleries of Paris, perhaps he sought consciously that which could powerfully and provocatively negate the past, but only whilst tacitly accepting the contemporary fears and feelings about the dark continent. And perhaps Picasso sought to paint into those two right-hand figures something of the night, to construct them silent, sexual, predatory, and scary. The physical satiation for the contemporary fears and fascination for the sexual and psychological freedoms associated with savagery. Freedoms that would be fully explored by bourgeois Paris en masse a generation later at the shows and excesses of women like Josephine Baker. The year after he completed Demoiselle d'Avignon, the intensity of Picasso's image-making altered, and again the source of that change was Africa. Most of Picasso's African artefacts came originally from West Af West and Central Africa, the bulk from Ivory Coast and Gabon. But through late 1907 and 1908, Picasso's collection of African artefacts grew to encompass a broader range of styles and forms. The expansion of his collection offered new points of inspiration. I, I um, went to see some of um, Murray Frum's collection with Gillian, uh, and he was very generous in showing us some of the things that he, he personally still... Um, has uh, and seeing some of these uh, up close outside of a museum, it's the first time I've, I've ever. And it, it, gosh, the hairs on the back of my neck are still kind of stand. Well, as you can see, not very many, but uh, they're still they're still standing on end as a result of, of of that. And I got an idea of why you would want to own something like this, to live with it, to have it in your studio. I mean, they are electric objects. And you can imagine that growing up through a period of Impressionism, seeing these objects that just seem to radiate a kind of electricity and wanting to find ways of just capturing a little bit of that power. 
Um, and when Picasso sees these uh, Cota reliquaries, he has to have some, but he has to find ways of incorporating it into his work. And he seems to step back away from the actual work. He doesn't engage too directly and intellectually with the sculpture. I mean, whereas when he was working on Demoiselle d'Avignon, Picasso was said to have considered the notion of reducing the subject to its idea, to its emotion, rather than being limited by representation. I mean, here in this called The Dancer of Avignon, this, I think, it actually flirts with its inspiration. The Dancer of Avignon is like the disturbed, perverted half-sister of the original. If anything, the composition of The Dancer of Avignon is the work that's most similar to its inspiration during this period. He dissects his subject and reconstructs and reanimates the elements with his own narrative, looking for a Gabonese Bacota sculpture and the dancer, looking at a Gabonese um, Bacota sculpture um, and the dancer of Avenue. It's unclear whether he decided to consciously to, 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 to misread the, the original or whether it, was un, whether it was an unconscious thing. But the, the arms of the painted figure are raised behind the head to suggest what in the original Bacota headdress was, in the original was a Bacota headdress. The painted legs mirror the sculpted handles of the mask and the beautiful striated surface of the original have become, in Picasso's hands, a lattice of scar tissue it's both hideous and beautiful at once. It is almost, to me, like a human assemblage, a still life of humanity. But at the same time, how unstill, how unsettling an image it makes. I mean, Picasso's, Picasso's um, figure is trying to burst, to break out of an unnatural pose, whilst the original is in my mind, regal and restful. While Picasso's captured what Africa may have represented to Europe of the period, the original is nothing if not the very encapsulation of stillness. And Picasso's appetite for the new was voracious. And when Picasso came upon um, Dan Masks, and these are masks that are traditionally used in death and spiritual customs. And he saw the opportunity once again to shift gear. And he used them almost literally, closely, transcribing their form and dimensional subterfuge into paint. It's this skill and complexity that makes Picasso's borrowing so interesting. And there's a move away from the hard lines of Ivorian sculpture. And there's a move into something which is much softer, much more like the Dan, who are from Liberia, just much more like the Dan originally. I mean, suddenly this, the contour and the facial schema have become rounded and simplified. The hollowed cheeks either side of the nose, the, the ovide... O o o oval solid forms that they've become the kind of focus of his borrowing 
But he's also worked through Matisse's journey, I think, here. And he's found the kind of thing that I think about when I think of Africanness. He no longer relies on provoking resonances of the primitive. He's found an actual sympathetic line through the physiognomy. And he's confidently summarised what feels to me much more like an African aesthetic. The blank eyes are more anonymous, stately and majestic as they would have been in the original. But it has a kind of essence of something that you would want to be around, that you'd want to feel a sense of respect for, not to fear. This is a thing to respect. This is not an objectified prostitute. This is the inner mechanics of a person. And I think possibly that the true mark of respect is that he based a self-portrait, this one here, on a Dan mask, finding with it something reflective, personal, finding a little bit of himself. And although Picasso became, came upon African art later than many of his contemporaries, he managed to negotiate the aesthetic no-man's land between two radically different cultural worlds more successfully than any other artist, possibly except Matisse. But unlike anyone else, even Matisse, almost incidentally, he found a, credibly way, a credible way to chart a course through the new psychological age. He created an art that reflected our neuroses and questioned our traditions, ruthlessly choking the final death rust. <coughs> Sorry, my final death mask. <coughs> Excuse me choking the final death rasp from the aesthetic of the 19th century. And from that moment on, everything comes out into the open. It wasn't safe to find, to hide in what wasn't said, to take refuge in the 19th century shadows. I actually think that Africa is a kind of Pandora's box for Europe. Picasso's psyche was the key. In no other contemporary artist's hands did African artists play such a significant part, in my mind. And African art went on to be critical in redirecting Picasso's art for the first two decades of the 20th century. And so deep was the effect on Picasso that some of his contemporaries, contemporaries perceived his affinity to be the result of some kind of African blood. But what is clear is that Picasso was un understood that African art, African masks particularly, are not simply portraits. They're meant to be the essence of the subject, sometimes literally, as inanimate embodiments of the very spirit of people. They're not open visual dialogues. They capture absolutely the moment and a person's soul. And in every sense, we're meant to interact with them as a powerful smell that can often be tasted in their texture, in their form. Where one might expect a concave form, an African sculptor might give you a convex one. Pulling your eyes and your other senses into complete interaction by feeling the person, smelling them, imagining the emitted form, by visually filling the lost volumetric mass as shadows and dimension become liquid, a front view hiding a side silhouette, an omitted cheekbone becoming a full cheek in shadow, 
during the course of 1907, these axioms of African visual logic were revealed to Picasso, putting in place some of the intellectual foundations of Cubism and what was to follow. I think the last century has been very cruel to Africa, and much of that which has been most cruel has come out of attempts to be benevolent. It's easy when one looks back on this period to see how what went on in art mildly reflected what was going on politically and economically. One of the saddest results of this is that this wonderfully romantic art has become labelled as primitive, and the work that had inspired primitivism. Yet, ironically, African art in some way touched much of the great European art of the modern era. Thank you very much. So if we could have the lights on again. Um, does anybody have any questions for Gus? We, by the way, we have two handheld microphones. We are recording this talk to podcast from the website, so we love to record the questions as well because we often get such great answers and they make no sense if you can't hear the questions. So I saw a hand. Kathleen, can you? Yeah. <laughs> Do tell me your names as well before. I'd like to. Andrew Pozo. Uh, nice to meet you. Sorry, could you ask the question again? Where is your great hat? <laughs> uh, I'm glad you think it's great. I've, when doing Lost Kingdoms of, of Africa on the first um, day of filming, um, I was given a hat, and um, I didn't like it very much, but I thought I'd try it on. And um, the director said, go right over there. And they filmed me, and he said, basically now that hat is you and you're going to have to wear it. So kind of three, three years later of wearing that hat, and it's a hat, that, it's a hat that's seen many, many miles and has become very, very smelly and horrible. But uh, uh, I've grown to kind of to, to, to love it in a strange sort of way. Um, but uh, I, I leave it at home whenever I possibly can. So. <laughs> Catherine Maudsley from Hong Kong. And I have a question. I'm perplexed about the image you showed of Picasso's collection. Yes. Uh, at what time was that taken? And the display seems odd. Would you care to comment on that? Um, I think this, is, um, this, this comes from um, William Rubin's book. Um, and I think, I, I might be wrong, but I think that this was actually after Picasso's death and that they collected his... His, all his different possessions, and that, that this was a photograph of, of of his. I think it's actually more his um, non-Western art collection because not all of it is, is 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 African, but the vast majority. And it gives you a sense of the breadth um, of his collection. I mean, not all of it is 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 great, incredible work, but you get a sense that he's lived with the work. It's not that he's, um, you know, that he's, he's had it in cases and he's had it, you know, it, that he's um, kept it, sort of uh, held it in aspect. But this is work that he's, he's adored and he's loved and it has been a kind of a silent muse in his life. Thank you. I'm coming. 
Well, Senior, and I actually would like to ask two questions. But the first one, uh, when we talk about 1897 to 17 to 1907, yes, uh, he seems to, art seems to come from portrayal of the the bourgeoisie to yes. portrayal of the lump and proletariat with some yes proletariat. Is this a, a correct perception? It, it seems to. Sorry, could you repeat that? I've just missed. Is this a, a correct perception where the art world seems to portray start go from jump from portraying the bourgeoisie to portraying the marginal? No, I don't think it's a, a matter of month. I think what I was trying to say is it's about a lot of the. Uh, if you imagine wandering around the gallery um, and looking at impressionist paintings, that I think there's a connection to. There's a connection to that kind of process that would have gone back two hundred years. If if in the middle of the, if in the middle of the um, of, of of, of the 18th or 18th century, that you had wandered around a gallery in London, that it would have you'd had a kind of a similar kind of relationship to the work. That this was about beautiful, interesting, um, occasionally kind of um, provocative work, but you had a very particular kind of relationship with it. But I think that the kind of arresting nature of the sort of project that Picasso was engaged in was. Um, it was personal. It was meant to. It was meant to be provocative in a different kind of way, to set a different kind of agenda, to ask different kinds of questions, to make you feel, um, I think, differently about it. And um, I think it's it's very difficult to engage with it. Or I personally feel very difficult to engage with it in the same kinds of way. It forces you to. Um, to think and to interact with it um, somewhat differently. And so I, I think that there is a kind of a, a different sort of project that is going on between those two moments. And it's only, it's only kind of a decade. I mean, obviously, these things are always running concurrently. But when you see it posed like that, it is very, it is very acute. It's, it, it feels kind of shocking. And I imagine that the people who wandered into galleries and saw that work for the first time, it's, I remember the first time I got into a bus and I saw, I don't know, I must have been quite young, but I saw um, someone dressed as a punk and that with um, um, green hair and, um, you know, with, uh, you know, razor blade earrings and, you know, and uh, uh, the idea that one would do that when... Everything I'd seen about the human body before that point was about beautification. It was shocking and arresting, and it brought up a whole new set of possibilities about what one could do with oneself. And I think that's what happened at this moment, that it's saying we can have a different set of ambitions, and it opens up everything. And it, that's the reason why I was trying to give that context to it, because it happens when there's beginnings of mass market cars so the idea that I can go anywhere I can go quickly I can own a car I can the idea of of of, um, of, of psychology of actually looking inside of beginning to map the mind of you know different kinds of freedoms a different kind of sense of possibility and what this does is mapping a kind of visual 
alternative to trying to render light on canvas. I mean, it's, it's just a different thing entirely for me. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's answered your question well. The other question is, uh, do you think that the North African influences on his Iberian culture more enabled him to, uh, than the rest of Europeans, to get in touch with uh, Central African or whatever, uh, Ivory Coast, uh, Ghana, you know, the Asante and people like that? Did it, it gave them, sorry, could you did, just? Did his, the Iberian influences, yes. the Moorish influences Iberia. Oh, I see. Empower him to more thoroughly look at, at African culture. I think that it's, it's, it's driven by the same impetus, which is, I want something new. I want to innovate. And the, one of the ways in which I guess most people who are innovative, that they function, is they look for catalysts. And they look outside of the traditional margins. They don't want to, they don't want to kind of visit the salons and see the kind of impressionists. They want to find something completely different. So they go to these seedy markets in the back streets of Paris that they frequent the cafes and the bars um, um, and they would have met sailors and they would have met travellers and they would, have, they, would have been, they would have been African people who, who were working in and around Paris. And this would have been dangerous and interesting and exciting and wonderful. Um, and they would have thought, that energy is what I want. And, and just as, you know, you see young creative people today that they don't want to be around the kind of conventional, the easy, the, the traditional. They want to find things that are completely sort of electric and riveting and dangerous and, and new. And that's where they sought it. And then, after meeting these people, and then they saw these objects that were com doing something complete. It was so dangerous. These were, this was at the time when there, was, there were sciences that were saying these people were barely human, you know, and that the idea of us taking their cultural product and actually saying we want to use it to catalyse and create a new kind of art that we're going to put on a pedestal, that was revolutionary. And then to make it personal as well, so that it's not, it's not kind of... Um, it's not sort of classical portraits, but it, it has kind of psychosexual tensions that it's dealing with, all kinds of issues that were kind of slightly edgy as well. Sorts of things that you could see in the Victorian painting, but which were kind of laden with a kind of hypocrisy. This was saying, we're going to get it out there. We're going to deal with it. And it was shocking in a way. I wonder, I mean, obviously, I'm a kind of conventional, boring, middle-aged man, but I wonder what one, could do, what one could do now to shock audiences in the same way. Because this is more shocking than Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin and things like that. This was, like, mind-blowing. I can't think of what the equivalent might be. And the catalyst for this, fascinating, I find it, is not... It's not an object, it's not... It's another kind of art. And 
I think that there is that tension in Picasso because in acknowledging it's another kind of art means that it's not necessarily completely original. And so I think he has this relationship where he wants to both say, I accept the, the incredible creative genius of this. Sometimes he says that. And at other times he's quite sort of adamant that you know, this work you know, it didn't really affect me. They're more witnesses rather than uh, inspiration. And it's because he's conflicted. And you can understand that. And, I, you know, so many great artists that they borrow and they steal and they, you know, that's what makes them great. And it's knowing when and how to do it. And I, I think it's fascinating the way he does it and the journey he takes, both he and Matisse. Uh, and it just kind of blows apart the possibilities of art, and we're still living with the repercussions of that. Okay. Oh. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, Trisha. Hello, Trisha. It's Makeda. Hello, Ken. Um, so, so I think you kind of probably answered my question, but I was wondering, did he ever, in his relationship and development with his relationship with African art, ever venture to Africa and actually talk to artists? Did he ever get a one-on-one -on -one conversation? Or did was he basically like a witness to what was coming out of Africa and then his perception grew from that? Hmm. I think the thing about Picasso is that, you know, the image of his studio gives you a sense of just how voraciously collected, and this is just one area in a very particular point in his career. And within... 15 years, he's on to something else and he's working with Stravinsky and then he's doing... You know, this is a mind which just sucks energy and influences from anywhere. Just incredible, voracious appetite. And so I think that almost the idea that these were mute objects, I think, attracted him. Because I think anything more complicated that would have required him to, in some way give back to interact would have been more difficult. I think what he wanted was to do what he does really well, which is to go to see something, to explore it, to take what he wanted from it and to move on. And he did that, you know, in Spain. He did it with people even. Um, but um, with these objects that uh, he does it, uh, you know, with incredible passion and for a very short period of time, you can tell that he absolutely adores these things and the possibilities that they offer, and then he moves on. So it doesn't give him, him the time. He doesn't have that to go and to explore Africa, and I wonder what he would have thought. Probably hated it. I mean, that, that's the irony, is that it's not... What he wants is what I think he got from it. And um, uh, in a way, the, the complexity for us is to now have those two contexts where partially what he wanted, if you see the kind of Duran and the, you know, his other contemporaries, that's what they wanted from it. There's the, it was this kind of exotic, exciting, wanton, fantastic, scary thing. And you want that. You don't want it to be any more complicated. And that for us today, you know, where... You know that you Africa doesn't represent that. You know it's you know you kind of think of Kofi Annan and you think of you know, the complexity of Africa today isn't about that. And so, looking at the two things, that the 
the African work means something different, but so does what Picasso produced. And I think those complexities, I mean, that is the beauty of art history, is that every time you look at a painting, that the frame through which you look at it, I think, slightly changes the work. And the great thing, I guess, about Picasso is that it has the strength, the integrity in itself to actually to, 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 uh, to, to, to last. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Vanessa. Hello, Vanessa. Just wondering what happened to his collection. Has it been kept intact? Is it on display somewhere? To be honest, I don't know. But um, I, I hope that I'm hope I would hope that it would be held intact. Because what I would love is one day to see an exhibition that explores some of the. But can you imagine if you actually were able to compare the two? You know, because the, the, there are so many sketches. I mean, when going upstairs and you see the way in which those, the, the, you know, the, 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 different, the different sketches for these, these five women, it's fascinating. And I, I would love it if one could take some of the objects that he must have used to create this and actually build an exhibition around it. Because just this one painting was so important, so important for the trajectory of 20th century or, or of art, full stop. Um, and you could actually build the archaeology, the, the, create a genealogy of all of the different influences around that man. Um, and, you know, if one could actually find those... Those, those, the actual kind of African art that he owned, it would be even more fascinating. And you've put an idea in my head, so thank you. <laughs> Hi, my name is Nick. Hello, Nick. I was just wondering why, if African sculpture had such an influence on Picasso's drawings and paintings, yes. it seems that it did not have such an influence on his sculpture, because if you look at a sculpture yes. at the period... There were no masks, there were no portraits, there were guitars. How would you explain that? No, but if you, if you go upstairs, so you look at, there's um, a 1931 sculpture of, uh, it's a bronze of a woman's head with a huge elongated nose. That, uh, and then wander from that gallery across and you will see on that middle podium something which is very similar in form that comes from comes from um, central West Africa, and you get you'll you'll see how he may not he may not kind of uh, he may not kind of it may not be as literal as it is at this stage. And what I found fascinating about this is that you can that the visual archaeology it you don't have to kind of stretch your imagination, but it continues it continues those resonances that they continue and that. You know, if you go upstairs and you look, and the great thing about this institution and um, its collections and this particular moment where you have the Picasso and you actually have your fantastic From collection is that you can see those two things playing against each other in two exhibitions simultaneously. And it's very exciting. But I, I agree that we should find ways of making it more explicit. Um, and it, it does continue to happen. 
you, you mentioned. Sorry, uh, what's your oh, name? it's Alexander. Hi, nice Alexander. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Stravinsky earlier, and that was part of my question. Oh, okay. Um, when the Rite of Spring premiered in, I guess, 1912? Yes. 1913, I believe that that's considered the birth of 20th century music. Yes. So has anyone ever compared Les Demoiselles d'Avignon in the art world to uh, the Rite of Spring? Or what was going on music? A and and Rite of Spring is quite a few years later, but was it considered, was it not considered ugly and outrageous? And what did people think of Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, did they think it was ugly? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm just asking. Well, I mean, Stravinsky and Picasso worked together, and if you think it's, um, what's it called? Um, the Soldier's Tale, is it? That Stravinsky writes about this sort of period, and that he's, he, Stravinsky becomes fascinated by the idea of jazz, but record technologies are such that he couldn't get jazz recordings that easily and so a lot of his understanding his early understanding of jazz is actually um is is gained through um looking at notation and you know if you think about the, the very idea of jazz is partially about something which is created you know yes exactly in the moment and um so uh you know if you listen to that early work that it is a bit like kind of Duran that he he, he he captures the idea of of it um but it's it's somehow it's not jazz it's like a kind of it's like if you explain to someone who had never heard jazz what it might be like he'd found the constituent parts and put them together in, in an interesting way but I, I don't think it has the essence of it but by the time, absolutely, like the time he gets to the writers, he's found ways of reconstructing the kinds of the, the sorts of ways in which kind of tonality is used, and he's, you know, he's travelled and he's heard jazz, and you know, if you think about the effects of what goes on around the First World War of bringing people from right all over kind of Europe and North America into Paris record technology improves so people are listening to it completely transforms his music and it, it, it then means that um, he is able to follow that kind of trajectory that, that Picasso that you can see Picasso where at the beginning it is a bit kind of awkward and sort of you can see the cogs going round but later on I mean it is just kind of seamless, exquisite, and it, and it is working on a completely different level. Um, so I, absolutely, I see the, the parallels, and I see it in a variety of different kinds of work as, as, as well, not just, uh, um, not just Stravinsky. Hi, my name is Ian Kurt. Um, Hi. And I wasn't around then, obviously, when this was happening. So, <laughs> no, was my question—I mean, <laughs> some people might not be that obvious, but, but to me, it is. The question is this: um, In today's society, things start very quietly, and they bubble under the surface, yes. and nobody knows about them for a long time. Yes. And then suddenly, there's an explosion. Yes. Now, given that these people had to make a living, 
Yes. And given the reaction of the public to works like this, yes. was this similarly bubbling quietly under the ground? Because I know, for example, this painting here, which is the most popular painting of the 20th century and the most important painting of the 20th yes. century, most likely, yes. Picasso didn't show this publicly for 12 to 15 years. Yes. So likewise, were the other artists in a similar vein holding back from the public for, uh, for a while before this burst onto the scene? And if you weren't in the in crowd, I don't think you would necessarily know this was going on. Yes. Thank yeah. You. But the, the beauty of the in crowd was that it was, um, it had some influential members. I and mean, if you think people like Apollinaire, these are collectors who, you know, Apollinaire, he knows Stravinsky, so he gets Stravinsky and Picasso together, and, you know, that he's wealthy enough to kind of, you know, pay for meals and to. So that they know influential people they they're meeting kind of american writers and um they're meeting kind of you know it's it's british intellectuals are coming so that they have there's this sense that we might be on the fringe but we are the future and i think that confidence that knowledge and also the sense i think that most people felt that the time was ripe for change I mean, if you think kind of revolution kind of rumbling across, you know, in, in, in Eastern Europe, um, changes in technology, people knew that things were about to change. And I think that gave them a sense of confidence. They had the money in that they had the number of patrons and supporters that made their lives, that made their lives, the very successful artists, comfortable fairly quickly. But they also, that they had just this sense that it was their destiny. I think they felt that, you know, times were due to change. And I think you can understand it. I, I mean, this is... And it, I imagine what it must have been like, kind of being a punk and walking down the street in kind of like 1972 or something, and that the look on people's faces... And I imagine that the people who entered the salons and saw this that it must, the electricity, that they must have known, even if I don't sell, I'm making a name for myself, I'm changing history, I'm rewriting, you know, that this, there's going to be a page in the footnotes of art history that is going to have my name in it. But they possibly didn't think they were actually going to change the whole trajectory of, of the discipline. One last question. I hope it's a good one, a nice yeah, one. A good one, a, a quick <laughs> A quick one, because we're just about up. While we're waiting for the question to come, I, you know, thank you so much. At the end of the talk, you covered your ideas of primitivism and your sort of really dislike of that term, because when we reopened, by the way, um, Gus came from England when we made a film of him in the African gallery talking about this relationship between Picasso and Matisse and African art. And you can see that up in the gallery. It's been running for three years. And it's also on YouTube. So if you do Gus Casely Hayford YouTube AGO, you'll get those two videos. But oh. anyway. well, I'd love coming back here. It's such a lovely place. And I just—I mean, the questions. I mean, I should have just shut up earlier and just listened to you. No, no, no. I think we would all like another hour of you talking about <laughs> African art. I know I would. But okay, let's have the last question. My name is Robert. Hi, Robert. Uh, he had a distinct rose period yes. and a distinct blue period. Yes. And his African period starts with. Yes. This. Yes. When does it end, or does it end? 
I, I would like to feel, and this is possibly just, this is me and my enthusiasms, perhaps over-enthusiasm, is that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end in that it, I mean, in terms of how it, it's manifest, that you, it probably about, uh, so 1907 really that it begins, but probably within about kind of um, six years that he's beginning to kind of move on to other things. But what I do think is that, as I said, you go upstairs and you see that head, 1931, and you can see that he's still playing. Those things that he's begun to think about at this stage, the visual vocabulary... It's the momentum of it. It continues throughout his, 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 his career. And it's a kind of an energy, a, a confidence with which I think that a lot of African art is executed um, that I think informs his practice. And that may be just something which is coincidental, but I, I see it, a kind of... Um, a kind of just kind of wanting to enjoy the creative process and finding the truth in the enjoyment rather than in the trying to replicate exactly what you see. And um, that's something that I feel so... Um, I feel so passionately about in African art is that it, it's not about um, capturing something photographically, it's about trying to capture you, the viewer, in the process of, of viewing and being part of the art, of you actually becoming part of it. I know the fantastic thing, going to um, Murray Frum's house and seeing some of his collection, that he has um, African art pieces at <coughs> room temperature. And many of these things have been... Have been loved over years in their original context. And people have, people have um, shown that love by um, putting layers of resin. This is resin that kind of is used to activate a kind of magic that is, in, is, is held within these objects. And um, when they're kind of um, left in, in the warmth, they sweat like a, a person. It's like they've come alive through the love that's been layered onto them. And, you know, seeing them in that kind of context where people are living around them, you can see them kind of, I don't know whether it's crying, whether it's, it's sweating, but it's, they feel alive. And it requires a kind of leap of the imagination when you see them in... Museums, but you can see in their forms that these aren't things which are dead objects that you're just meant to gaze over, that they're things that you're meant to form a kind of dynamic relationship with. And one of the great things that they've done upstairs is to create some of that with amazing film. But what I think Picasso has tried to do is to say this isn't about a kind of dead passive portraiture these women are alive, they're powerful, they're like you and I, um, and it's impossible just to have a passive relationship with them, that they have a kind of agenda that they're going to 
force upon you. And that kind of respect is something that I hope that people feel more about African art, you know, through the kind of incredible work that goes on, you know, here to display those works with respect. Um, and the great thing is that Picasso, through his engagement with the work, came to understand African art in a kind of similar way, even if he wasn't always prepared to acknowledge it. But thank you very much. Yeah. I, I, Gus, I mean, wow, that was absolutely fabulous. And I really hope that everybody here goes up to the African gallery and looks at that art through the lens that he's <laughs> given us. But before you all disappear, I do want to tell you, in two weeks' time, we have Diana Wadmer uh, Picasso. Ooh. Um, Amazing. Picasso's granddaughter uh, through Marie-Thérèse Walter. And she is going to talk about his sculpture. Now, it isn't advertised very wild, widely because it was a late booking that we managed to get with her. So that's two weeks' time here. She's doing a catalogue raisonné on his sculpture, so she's going to talk about his experimentation. So we can have the six de degrees of separation moment here with her. <laughs> and then on June 6th, we have two um, salespeople, specialists from Sotheby's in New York, Ooh. the same people who just sold the Monk's Scream for... 106, what was it, $107 million? They're not quite, anyway, fabulous. So I couldn't hear anything from them for the last few weeks because they were so busy with that. <laughs> and then next week we have Alan Wilkinson, who was a create, curator here for a long time and responsible for working with the Moore Foundation, bringing us our wonderful Moors. So. It just gets better and better. It gets, it? well, wonderful. no, I, I'm not sure oh, it's, it's <laughs> going to get better than this. I, this, this is it. Yes. Thank you so much, Thank you Gus. very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.